0: When I started Already Gone back in the spring of 2016, one of the things I wanted to do was focus on lesser-known cases, specifically lesser-known unresolved cases. People like Cindy Moore, Akita Irvin, Carson McDowell, Nikki Wells, people whose friends, family, and loved ones are still hoping for answers. Today, I'm bringing you another case from the lesser-known unresolved file. The bizarre disappearance of a teenage girl, a high school senior who was enjoying her last days of freedom before school resumed in the fall. If you're a native Detroiter like myself, you know who General Anthony Wayne is. You know that he gave his name to the county where Detroit and many of its suburbs are located. But today we're leaving Michigan and heading south to Ohio. An area perched along Interstate 75, about halfway between Columbus and Indianapolis, Indiana, just 30 miles north of Dayton, Ohio, sits the small community of Piqua. Like much of the Midwest, Piqua was once home to Native American tribes who gave the community its name. In the late 1700s, General Anthony Wayne established a fort there. And while the natives were driven out, the name they bequeathed on the community remains. Today's story takes place nearly 200 years after Wayne built a fort on that spot. We are in the mid-1990s, when 18-year-old Shailene Farrell, the oldest child of Darlene Farrell, is enjoying the last few weeks of summer before starting her senior year of high school. Shailene, a lovely young woman who never gave her mother any trouble, is about to do something out of character that will set the town of Piqua on edge. So come with me to a sunny summer Monday in August, when a teenage girl takes the family car on an errand from which she will never return. Shailene Farrell was a typical teenager. She liked music and makeup. She liked spending time with her best friend. She smoked cigarettes, and she had the occasional drink at a party, and she had recently gotten in some trouble with her mom when she was caught experimenting with marijuana. Shailene had a part-time job and enjoyed her role as big sister to her many younger siblings. She was particularly close with two of her brothers, teenage Michael and almost four-year-old Shane. Before we explore her disappearance, we need to go back. Earlier in the year, Shailene was seeing a new guy, we'll call him Billy, and she was partying with new friends, people in Greenville, Ohio a town in Dark County, about 22 miles west of Piqua. These new friends had her hanging out with a rougher crowd than she was used to. She also made some new friends and new acquaintances in Greenville, many of them a bit older than Shailene, and some of them had criminal records. Listeners, keep these friends in mind, because we're going to talk about them later. It's important to mention this new circle that Shailene was running with because it led to a rift between Shaylene and her mother in the summer of 94. Darlene caught Shaylene smoking marijuana in the house, and the two of them argued. Darlene made her position clear. If Shaylene was going to stay in Darlene's house, she needed to abide by the rules. Marijuana was illegal. Not only could Shaylene get in a lot of trouble if she was caught with drugs, this is something that could impact the entire family. She wanted her daughter to make better choices. Shaylin responded by moving out. She stayed at a friend's house for a few days. And I don't know if she came to her senses or if her friends persuaded her to make better choices, but she did return home and the usual mother daughter relationship resumed. Darlene was close with Shaylin and things were soon back to normal. The weekend of August 6th started out like any other, but on this weekend, Darlene Farrell was out of town. Darlene's mother, who lived in New Jersey, was having some health issues, so Darlene took her son, Michael, with her to visit New Jersey for a visit and to offer help. This increased Shaylin's responsibilities at home, but she still carved out time to work her shifts at the Pick and Save and hang out with friends. In fact, on Sunday night, just hours before she vanished, Shailene opted not to stay over at a friend's house knowing she was needed at home to help her mother's partner, Dwayne Childers, with the younger kids. In addition to 18-year-old Shailene, there was 16-year-old Michael, 14-year-old Colleen, Shane was nearly four years old, and Sean, the baby of the family, was two. The house, which contained a blended family, was noisy and full, but it was a happy place, and aside from the normal teenage conflict, Shailene had a good relationship with her family. Dwayne Childers, father to the youngest boys, he worked third shift, which had him leaving in the evenings and returning home in the morning. When he left for work on Sunday, August 7th, Shailene was still out with her friend Amy. And she and Amy weren't doing anything special, they were just enjoying their summer as teenagers do. Shailene would be home by 9 o'clock Sunday night, because there was a movie she wanted to watch on television. The morning of Monday, August 8th, 1994, Childers returns home from working the late shift and speaks briefly with Colleen and Shailene. He asks them to pick up the house, keep an eye on their brothers, help out, that sort of thing. It was about 9.30 in the morning when he climbed into bed. He will later tell police that he went to his room to get some sleep. Both girls were home, and everything seemed fine. Not long after Childers turns in, Shailene tells Colleen that she wants iced tea from the store. Does Colleen want to come along? The four of them could go. Colleen and the little boys. Just a quick errand. Colleen declines. She'll stay home and watch the boys. Shailene tells her that she'll be back shortly. Shailene picks up the keys to the family wagon, and yes, it is literally a family wagon, a silver 1981 Chevy Malibu station wagon. And she heads to the pick-and-save grocery store on Covington Avenue. Now, I thought it was odd to go to a grocery store for a single-serving beverage. The local 7-Eleven or corner gas station seems like a more convenient destination, but Shailene worked the pick-and-save. In fact, she's scheduled to work that night. And as Shailene is leaving the house, Colleen gets a last look at her big sister. Shailene is wearing blue athletic shorts from Piqua High School, a white t-shirt with the brand name No Fear emblazoned on the front, and a pair of black sandals. Shailene doesn't take her wallet or her ID with her, and this will be important later on. Shailene starts the car and heads out to the pick-and-save. She will not be seen again. In the late afternoon, Dwayne Childers gets up and prepares dinner for himself and the children. He notices that Shaylin is gone, and Colleen tells him she left earlier and hasn't returned. Aside from what I imagine is a bit of annoyance that Shaylin didn't help at the house that day as requested, neither of them think much of it. When Dwayne leaves for work that evening and Shalene still hasn't returned, he assumes that she's working her scheduled shift at the pick and save. That evening, he does speak with Darlene. He wants to check in, see how Darlene's mother is doing. He mentions that Shailene was gone all day, and Darlene finds this concerning. It's 1994, so there's no cell phones. Shailene didn't have a pager, so there's no way for Darlene to reach her daughter and ask where she is or when she's coming home. When Childers returns from work on Tuesday morning, he sees that the wagon isn't at the house. He asks Colleen if she's seen her sister and Colleen tells him that she hasn't made it home. Now he's annoyed. He's tired from a long night at work. His partner, Darlene, is out of town. There are two young boys needing attention. Childers places a call to Darlene to see if she's heard from Shalene, but she hasn't heard from her daughter, and she tells him to call the police. He first makes a call to Shalene's best friend, Amy. He asks where Shalene is, and her response stops him cold. Amy says she hasn't seen Shaylene since Sunday. In fact, Shaylene missed her shift at work. She hopes she's not going to get in trouble at the new job. The two of them, Amy, who is Shaylene's best friend, and Dwayne Childers, her stepdad, report Shaylene missing to Pickwell Police. Law enforcement thought that Shaylene could be a runaway, and they aren't sure what they can do to help him. Shaylene is 18 years old, making her an adult in the eyes of the law, which means she's allowed to go missing. He expresses his concern about her missing work. That is out of character for her. Sure, she was a typical teenage girl. She wasn't perfect, but disappearing with the car and skipping a shift at work, that doesn't sound like her. Police tell him they will keep an eye out, and they ask him to call her friends. I'm certain police told him that Shailene would be home soon. That's when the family wagon is located, in the parking lot at the pick-and-save with the windows rolled down, as if Shailene parked at the grocery store intending to go in for a quick purchase, perhaps the iced tea she mentioned to her sister, but didn't return. The car and the area around the car are unremarkable. There are no personal items, no broken glass, no signs of a struggle. When Darlene Farrell returns home Wednesday night, she checks Shailene's room but there's no sign of her daughter. She finds nothing that points to Shailene running away, especially since her purse and ID are still in the house. Her clothes are still there in her room. There's nothing missing from her dresser or her closet. Her cosmetics and personal items are all waiting for her return. The only things missing are Shailene and the keys to the car. In an August 25th, 1994 news story in the Dayton Daily News, Shailene's good friend Amy states that she and Shailene spent Sunday together, goofing off, going to friends' houses, driving around. Typical teenage stuff. Shailene wanted to be home by 9 because there was a movie airing on Showtime she wanted to watch. When Shailene got home, her mother's boyfriend, Dwayne Childers, had already left for work. Amy and Shailene would speak on the phone later in the evening. It would be the last time she spoke to her friend. The day before she disappeared seemed normal, just another summer day in the life of a teenage girl. By the weekend, with Shailene missing almost five full days, Darlene Farrell is standing in front of the pick-and-save handing out missing persons flyers. I cannot imagine how alone and frustrated she must have felt. All the questions she must have asked herself. Would things have been different if Darlene were home? Did Shailene run away, despite leaving all of her personal items behind? Or, worse yet, was her daughter suffering somewhere, waiting to be found? Darlene pushed through these thoughts and pushed through her grief and her pain. She was focused on finding her daughter. Darlene Farrell was originally from New Jersey, and in the days following the disappearance of Shailene, both Darlene's sister and her mother, the one who'd been hospitalized just a few days earlier, they arrive in Piqua to help search for Shaylene. In addition to relying on her family, Darlene, a Catholic, speaks regularly with the parish priest for guidance and support. When it appears that Shaylene is not a runaway and that she may actually be in danger, police start investigating, and they learn that her car, the silver Malibu wagon, was parked at the pick-and-save all day on Monday. Her co-workers thought it was weird that the car was there, but Shaylene didn't show up for her shift. When police interview store employees, no one recalls seeing Shaylene in the store that day. They only recall working with her earlier in the week. The week of August 15th, Darlene Farrell gets a phone call from an acquaintance of Shaylene. a man, and I do mean man, because this person is at least eight or 10 years older than her daughter. He tells Darlene that she needs to have the police back off of him. They should back off or she won't like it. Darlene hangs up the phone and informs police of the bizarre and disturbing call. So, listeners, remember how I told you at the start of the episode that Shailene had some new acquaintances, people in Greenville, Ohio, people who were older than her, people with criminal records? The call was made by one of those men, someone Darlene learned of through conversations with her daughter. That's who called her. And these men, there are two of them, they've never been named publicly, but are thought by many to be involved in Shailene's disappearance. Both of these men have criminal records, and both of them have spent time in prison. These are not nice people. By mid August, all four of Piqua's detectives are working the case. They interview her friends and coworkers, they pour over phone records and check Shalene's bank account. She'd recently received her first paycheck from her job at the Pick and Save. $30 from that check went toward rent and phone at the house. The money left over, Shailene spent on makeup and a new CD, items she left behind. If Shailene did leave on her own, she had little money and didn't take any of her belongings. If she was going to take off and start a new life, it seems like she would have chosen something other than the clothing she wore when she left the house that morning blue Pickwa High School shorts, a white No Fear brand t-shirt, which belonged to her brother Michael, and black sandals. If Shailene did decide to leave, she did so with no money and just the clothes on her back. When school starts in September, Shailene isn't there with her classmates. She'd been missing several weeks at that point, and the school year would end the same way, without her. The class of 1995 would graduate without Shailene Farrell. In March of 1995, about eight months after she went missing, her family announced that they are holding a memorial service for Shalene at St. Mary's Church. Pickwell Police Chief Philip Potter will tell the press that they have no evidence that Shalene is deceased, but he understands that the family feels a need for closure. Darlene will say that she knew Shalene was gone. She knew it within days of her going missing. Shalene, her beautiful daughter, is not coming home. I mentioned earlier that Darlene was speaking with her parish priest, seeking guidance. He helped her make the difficult choice to hold a memorial for her daughter. It was important not only for her as a mother, but for Shalene's many siblings. Shane, her almost four-year-old brother, was always looking for her, always hoping he would find her, and he would grieve the mysterious loss of his big sister until his own death, Suicide when he was just 19 years old. In the summer of 1995, about a year after Shailene vanished, Darlene Farrell spoke to the press about her experiences when her oldest child first went missing. She said that people didn't want to help her, and she shared how one time, while handing out flyers featuring her missing daughter, women actually recoiled from her, refusing to look at, let alone take, the flyer. And what a painful, hurtful experience that was on top of not knowing what became of her child. To process her own grief and to help others who were also struggling with loss, Darlene partnered with two other women whose children are also missing. She teamed up with Kathy Gall, the mother of 26-year-old George Gall, who went missing from Dayton, Ohio in October of 1994. She also worked with Linda Smith, the mother of Paul Barrett. When it was last seen in Dayton, Ohio, on December 28, 1994, these three mothers founded a group called Vanish, which would provide support to families of missing persons and reassure them that they are not alone in their loss. As a tragic aside, none of these mothers received a happy ending to their story. George Gall, last seen exiting a bus in the city of Dayton, he remains missing. The remains of 29-year-old Paul Barrett were discovered by mushroom hunters in the spring of 1996. His skeletal remains were found on top of a handgun. Barrett died from a gunshot wound to the head, and his clothing showed signs of a struggle, but the coroner ruled his death indeterminate due to the condition of his remains. Shalene's family would carry on in her absence. Unfortunately, there was little movement in the case over the next three years. Well, little movement that the public was aware of. I'm certain that Pickwa's Finest ran down tips and leads as they came in. It took the 1998 disappearance of 19-year-old Lynn Topp, a resident of North Star, Ohio, to bring Shalene's case back into the headlines. North Star is a tiny town 28 miles northwest of Piqua, and when I say tiny town, I mean it has a population of less than 300 people. Top, a student at Wright State University, disappeared while out on a run. A massive search took place in an attempt to locate her. Tips led law enforcement to Union City, an area where Shalene's remains were thought to be concealed. As searchers and volunteers fan out to look for the missing teenager, they were reminded to also be vigilant for signs of Shailene Farrell, who had been missing more than three years. And while her family accepted that Shailene was likely deceased, they were still hopeful that they could find her remains, bury her, and have a grave to visit. They watched how law enforcement mobilized to search for Lynn Top, and that was painful for Shailene's family. Nothing like that happened when Shayleen vanished. The community did not rally for Shayleen the way that they did for Lynn. While the searches around Piqua, Greenville, and Union City are thorough, they reveal no sign of either missing woman. In March of 1998, the body of Lynn Topp is discovered in a farm field. The next day, the body of her alleged killer, Timothy Roadheffer, is found dead in a barn on the same property. His cause of death was a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Roadheffer's father will end up facing charges in her case. While the family of Lynn Topp received horrific news, it was news that gave them answers. The family of Shailene Farrell continues to wait. Rodeheffer is not a suspect in the Farrell case. Another interesting note about Top's disappearance and the subsequent search Piqua Police Chief Philip Potter told the Dayton Daily News that they have two suspects in Shalene's case, but both men are incarcerated in other states. He further explained that this is a homicide investigation, and likened searching for Shalene's remains to trying to find a needle in a haystack. Now, back to those two suspects that were incarcerated. I talked to a couple of people attached to Shalene's case. And more than one of them told me that these two suspects, it was one of them who made the bizarre and disturbing phone call to Darlene in the days following Shalene's disappearance. In May of 1998, a bone was discovered along State Road 571 in Union City, Ohio, about 20 miles from the pick and save grocery where Shalene's car was found. Unfortunately, testing revealed that it did not belong to the missing teenager. Detective Bruce Jamison, would later become chief of police he worked Shailene's case and kept in close contact with her mother until he retired from the force in the summer of 2019 when a person goes missing their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief bruce maitland he started the nonprofit organization private investigations for the missing because he knows this feeling all too well When his daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March of 2004, he began to use private investigators and discovered how valuable their services are to helping with her case and continuing the search for answers. Now, today, his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, people who are desperate for answers but lack the financial means to secure these services. Listeners, Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation and keep up with their blog, visit investigationsforthemissing.org and follow them on Twitter and on Facebook at P.I. for the Missing. They're on Instagram at investigationsforthemissing. That's investigationsforthemissing.org because forever is too long to wait. There has been no sign of Shailene since she left home about 10 a.m. on Monday, August 8, 1994. So let's run through the day of her disappearance. Shailene tells her sister Colleen that she's headed up to the Pick and Save to buy an iced tea. She invites Colleen and the boys to come with her. Colleen declines. Now, it seems strange to me that she'd leave the house for a soft drink at 9.45 in the morning. But again, Teenagers are impulsive, and Shailene may have been enjoying the freedom that comes with having her own money that she earned, as well as having access to a car. Now, the family wagon, the 1981 Silver Chevy Malibu, is left in the parking lot of the pick-and-save. The windows on the car are lowered. Now, it's possible the car didn't have air conditioning or that the air conditioning didn't work, but Shailene could have lowered them herself. Reports about the car make it sound like more than one window was down. I'm comfortable assuming that Shayleen lowered multiple windows to keep the car cool on an August day. Police and her family would speak with employees at the pick-and-save, but none of them recall seeing Shayleen on that Monday. She was expected to work Monday night, but it does not appear that she made it into the store at all that day. This tells me that she likely ran into someone she knew in the parking lot on her way into the store. But nobody visiting the pick-and-save that day saw anything out of the ordinary, so it seems like if Shailene ran into someone, she went with this person or persons willingly. If the two suspects mentioned in the 1998 news article, the two men who were never named publicly are involved, why would Shailene go with them? Perhaps one or both of them saw her that morning at the pick-and-save. And what if they weren't alone? Would that have made Shailene more comfortable around them? Maybe if they were with a girl her own age. Maybe they were with someone that Shayleen knew, at least casually. Now, if you believe the speculation you find online, the community knows exactly who these guys are. And I've seen them named publicly many times. I've even come across posts stating that one of these men threatened his girlfriend that she would end up like Shayleen if she didn't do as he said. Now, you can't believe everything you see online. But I would like to know if these people, people who know these men, people who suspect that they're involved in Shalene's murder, have they ever gone to police? Have they ever given a statement? One can hope, and maybe they have. Something else to consider. We've come across cases where the prosecutor will not move forward on a case without a body. That until the remains are recovered, the case is going to sit even if the identity of the perpetrator or perpetrators is an open secret, if that's what's happening here, it is frustrating and it is unfair, particularly to those who knew and loved Shalene. And I want to mention that while reading about her case online, I came across the names of serial killers mentioned as being possibly connected to her case. Law enforcement said they have ruled out serial killer involvement in her disappearance. So let's put those aside and focus on people from the community who may have come across Shailene that day or who could be involved in her disappearance. In August of 1994, Shailene was five three, about 130 pounds, with shoulder-length brown hair and hazel eyes. She wore eyeglasses and had a mole beneath her bottom lip. Shailene also had a scar on her right leg above the knee. You can find photos and links to additional information on our website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. Piqua police are still working this case. They are still hoping for resolution. So listeners, if you have tips, leads, or information, even if you've spoken with police previously, please call the Detective Bureau at 937-778-2027. That's 937 937- 778-2027. And listeners, in case you were wondering, Already Gone will release new episodes through the end of the year. On December 1st, we're back in Ohio to cover an unresolved murder that took place in a very unlikely location. December 15th, we're exploring the life and crimes of Carl Eugene Watts, known as the Sunday Morning Slasher. Watts left a trail of bodies across Michigan. And then he relocated to Texas, where he resumed his grim work. There will be no new episode on January 1st, but we're back January 15th to talk about a Detroit area murder that got a lot of attention in the press back in 2012. And if you're worried about new content to get you through the holidays, keep an eye out for season two of Don't Talk to Strangers. This season, we're talking about a resolved double homicide, a case that made people say, that kind of thing just doesn't happen here. But events that unfolded in this picturesque community were a grim reminder that this kind of thing can happen anywhere. Until then, I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. (laughs)